The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're studying hell, right? And by hell... I mean a place of eternal conscious torment, a place that never ends, a place of fire, a place of agony, a place where you burn and burn and never get burned up because you just it goes on and on, all right? And uh, so that's, that's what we're talking about. Now what we're talking about, does the Bible teach that or not? And that's what we're trying to look at right now. Now let me ask you something, quick survey here. How many of you have, other, apart from me saying it, how many of you have heard that Gehenna is the garbage dump of Jerusalem? Show of hands. Okay, good. All right, now remember last week I said, I asked you not to accept what I said, not to reject what I say, but to study it, because I say, I say that all the time, all right? I want you to study, I want you to know what you believe. Well, last week, I received an email from a Berean who questioned me about the fact of Gehenna being the garbage dump. This man's been to Jerusalem many times, and he says there's just no, no evidence about you know, them using Gehenna in the Valley of Hinnom as a garbage dump. So I thought, that's interesting. So I did some research, and I think he's right. You know, we all tend to end up on that calf path from time to time. You know, we follow those who have gone before and never do the research. So after some more research this week, here's what I found. There seems to be no evidence that the Valley of Gehenna, Hinnom, was a place of perpetual burning garbage. There's no literary sources, there's no archaeological data from intertestamental or rabbinic periods to suggest that Gehenna was Jerusalem's burning garbage dump. There's no mention of Gehenna being a garbage dump in the writings we have of the church fathers, Christian or Jewish writers, even some secular writers. Now, W.D. Davis and D.C. Allison, in their excellent commentary on Matthew, they note that the lack of evidence for this being a garbage dump, but they don't reject the notion entirely. In other words, well, there really isn't any evidence, but maybe it was. And maybe it was. I mean, we, we all realize they had to do something with the garbage, right? But they didn't have probably a lot to burn, you know, like us. They didn't have a lot of paper products and stuff, and they didn't have all that stuff. Well, in 2 Kings 23.10 here, it tells us that Josiah defiled Tophet, which is in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. All right, he defiled it, and I think, you know, <clears throat> when you read that he defiled it, you think, well, he defiled it by turning it into a garbage dump. But maybe we think that because it's already planted in our heads. <clears throat> I don't know. You know, the evidence really is not there to support that it was a dump, a perpetual burning. So if in fact Gehenna was not Jerusalem's garbage dump, where did the idea come from? I mean, any idea's got to start somewhere, right? Well, from what I could find, it seems that the earliest mention of the theory comes from a rabbi named David Kivi, who wrote a commentary on Psalm 27 in the 13th century. And he said this, Gehenna is, re, 
is a repugnant place in which filth and cadavers are thrown and in which fires perpetually burn in order to consume the filth and bones, on which account, by analogy, the judgment of the wicked is called Gehenna. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this very popular idea seems to have originated in Jewish circles around the Mid-Ages, Middle Ages. Now, so maybe Gehenna was not a trash dump for Jerusalem. Now, what, what's important here to me is that this doesn't change a thing of what I said last week, other than what I said it was a garbage dump. It changes that. <laughs> but nothing else. What did Yeshua mean when he talked about the fires of Gehenna? We see this in Mark 9, 43. And if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better that you enter life crippled than with two hands go into Gehenna to the unquenchable fire. So when Yeshua used the word Gehenna, what did the people who he was talking to think of? What did it represent to them? Now let me just briefly review some of the things we saw last week, because I think this is important. This is Jeremiah 7. This is an important text to understanding Gehenna. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hanom, and burned their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. All right. He's talking about the worship of Baal or Moloch where they burn their children alive to this God. Now notice what it says here. God says it didn't come into my mind. What didn't come into his mind? The idea of burning humans. Kind of interesting, huh? That, that idea, he says, never came in my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will be no more called Tophet the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. That's what we're going to call this valley, Gehenna. All right? For they will bury in Tophet because there is no room elsewhere. Now, when Jeremiah wrote this, Isaiah had already spoken of Tophet as a fiery destiny of the enemy of God. In Isaiah 30, 33, it says, For Tophet has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of Yahweh, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. So, in the Tanakh, the valley of Hinnom was associated with the destiny of the wicked. It was a place of fiery judgment. Isaiah closes his book with these words, 66-24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now this verse is talking about God's destruction of Jerusalem in the generation when Yeshua was crucified. So when Yeshua quoted these words in Mark 9, 48 and 49, their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, the disciples would have been familiar with these words referring to national judgment. That's what would come to their mind. Now, Edward Robinson, who was a preeminent explorer of the Holy Land, beginning in 1838, wrote this. In these gardens, lying partly within the mouth of Hinnom and partly in the valley of Jehoshaphat, and irrigated by the waters of Shalom, Jerome assigns the place of Tophet, where the Jews practice the horrid rites 
of Baal and Moloch and burned their sons and their daughters in the fire. It was probably an allusion to this, an abominable fire that later Jews applied the name of this valley, Gehenna, to denote the place of future punishment or the fires of hell. At least there is no evidence of any other fires having been kept up in the valley as has sometimes been supposed. So he says, you know, this is referring to national judgment. There's nowhere else where we talked about this. The valley of Hinnom was the scene of human sacrifice. They burned their children to worship Moloch and Baal. Now this accounts for the prophecy of Jeremiah that it's going to be called the valley of slaughter because of this abomination. Now the combination of abomination, abominable fires, and divine judgment led to the association of the valley with a place of perpetual fiery judgment. So Gehenna was a reference to the valley of Hanom and the fiery judgment of God. Now as I said last week, Gehenna was a place that had become identified in the people's minds as a symbol of national judgment. You're going to be judged. And you're going to be judged as a nation. Now, this is a big deal, especially if he was writing to America. And he was telling us, you know, your time is up. This nation is going to be judged. This country is going to be burned to the ground. So Gehenna is not a reference that I see it at all to eternal conscious torment. It's a reference to national judgment. A reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly in AD 70. So Gehenna has nothing to do with eternal conscious torment. But most Christians think there is a place, there's going to be a place if they don't think it's already there, of eternal fire torment called hell, which will ultimately be the fate of the wicked. But does the Bible teach that? That's the big question. Because that's all that really should matter to us, is what does the Bible teach? Not what tradition says, not what other people believe. Well, as I said last week, the word hell, if you find it in your Bible, is a bad translation. It's not in the original languages of the Bible, okay? It's just, it's a mistranslation. The word hell is translated or mistranslated from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew word Sheol, all right? Sheol is never seen as a fiery place of torment. There's nothing in the Tanakh to indicate that. Sheol refers to the state of being dead or the grave. And I don't know that it necessarily refers to an actual place. In, in the sense, it's just all humans go there. When they die, they go there. Now this is, we're talking Old Covenant. When the Old Covenant believer died, they went to Sheol. That's not true in the New Covenant. But that was Old Covenant. They, they died. They went there. It was the grave. It was dead. And the hope of the Jews was that someday this death would be reversed. By a resurrection. That was their hope. I think at this time, the Sheol is symbolic of death. You know, I say that a lot. I say this is my AT&T position. Let me, let me just add something here, okay? It's my at that time, because I'm, you know, I'm flexible. I'm still learning. There's some complicated things here. People mistake this, meaning I'm open to anything you want to change me to, Okay? I get letters all the time. Well, since you're open, maybe you should look at this. You know, the deity of Christ. No. There's some hills I planted a flag on, and I'm willing to die there, okay? 
there's a lot of things that, you know, to me, that are, they aren't that significant. And I'm still looking and I'm trying to figure them out. But when it comes to the deity of Christ, don't bother writing me, okay? That's a hill I'll die on. You know, don't bother, you know, this, you know people say, well, what about this Calvinism? And Listen, I was Arminian for eight years of my Christian life, okay? Then God opened my eyes. So don't bother telling me about you know, how Arminianism is the way. No, that's another hill I've already planted a flag on and I'm staying there because I think that's what the Bible teaches. There's some things I, I have a position on that I'm hanging to, okay? Because I've studied them. And this is what I see. But there's a lot of things I'm open to, especially things you haven't studied. You know, I got this email from this guy in Gehenna and I'm like, I never really did a deep dive into Gehenna being a garbage dump. Why would I? Everybody says it is. Well, there you go. You follow everybody, you'd be wrong. <laughs> you got to do the research on yourself, by yourself, all right? All right, in the New Testament, the word hell is mistranslated from three Greek terms. All right, the word Hades, which is the translation of the word, which is the Greek equivalent of Sheol. Hades, Sheol, they're the same thing, okay? They're the place of the dead. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. It's just where dead people go. They go to the grave. Uh, there's also Tartaro, which is want, used once in the New Testament. That's talking about condemned angels. All right, it's the only time it uses that. And then we have our word Gehenna. And Gehenna is used of national judgment. So none of these words speak of the abode of the damned where they go to eternal conscious punishment. None of these words. But if you've got a King James, King James will translate these words as hell. It doesn't always translate Sheol as hell. Sometimes it translates Sheol as grave. Sometimes as pit. Sometimes they say, let's translate it as hell here. Same word. They just, you know, they throw in there what they want. All right? And like I said, Young's literal translation never translates it hell because it's a literal translation and none of these words have anything to do with hell as we think of it. So, if you're going to get the concept, it doesn't come from the Hebrew or Greek, at least from the words that it's been translated that way. So, if you see it in your Bible, take note that it's not a, it's not a good translation. And, you know, do you think having those in the King James Bible has affected people's belief? You read that, you know, it's like the King James Bible. You read, the end of the world. The world's going to end. It doesn't say that. The Greek says the end of the age. An age can end and the world goes on. Well, see, mistranslations can really affect our thinking. All right. So none of the King James uses have anything to do with it. Now, as I said earlier, hell shouldn't be there. It just shouldn't be there. It's to, to put hell in there is a perversion. It's not a translation. Now, as we saw last week, the idea of eternal, eternal conscious torment is not found in the Tanakh. So let me ask you this. What new covenant truth is not found in the Tanakh? All right, I want you to think about this because I think everything in the New Testament except for one, there's one truth in the New Testament that's not found in the Tanakh. And it's not hell. It's the mystery that Paul is a steward of. And the mystery is Jew and Gentile are going to be one in the body of Christ. Equal members of the body of Christ. Other than that, 
all doctrines are laid out there before we get to the new. So all of a sudden, is this one doctrine missing that, you know, the Tanakh tells us nothing about torment of the dead, and we get to the New Testament and the New Testament teaches it? I don't think so. Second Temple Judaism is where this first shows up. All right, so we have no hint of eternal conscious torment in the Tanakh. Then we come to the intertestamental period. All right, Malachi ended. We had 400 years of no writings, all right, until the New Testament began. So during that period, that intertestamental period, <clears throat> things started to show up. All references in the Apocrypha, you've heard of the Apocrypha? To the end of the wicked is that they perish, except for one reference in Judith 16.17, which talks about eternal torment. All the Apocrypha, no mention of it, one run reference in Judith 16.17. That's the first picture of eternal torment in literature associated with the Bible. First thing you see. The literature of the Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha, you heard of that many times. The literature there is equally split between the teaching of the wicked perishing, they're gone, and being tormented. The Dead Sea Scrolls, you're all familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? The scrolls give a consistent picture of the total destruction of the wicked they perish. There is no hint of eternal conscious torment found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now the rabbinic literature, and by that I mean the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Mishnah, they support both views. That of the wicked perishing and that of eternal torment. So there's no single Jewish view. Alright? So you can't say, well, the Jews believe this. Which Jews? Alright? They had different views. Just, guess what? They're just like us. You know? You say, the church believes this. You can't say the church believes any one thing because everybody seems to have different opinions on stuff. Alright, so throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we have no hint of the end of the wicked being torment. But once you get to the intertestamental period, we start seeing some indication of it. And we'll talk about why this changes next week. But this change of views from men perishing at death to being tormented is seen in the parable in Luke 16. And, and you really can't talk about hell, eternal conscious torment, without talking about Luke 16 and Lazarus and the rich man. Because anytime you try to deal with it, people rush to that text and say, look here, right here, this proves this. You don't know how many doctrines are proved from this text. How many doctrines aren't there that are proved from this text? So let's look at the text and see if we can figure out what is going on here. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abram's side. Abram's bosoms, a lot of translations say. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, if you read that, would you think that's talking about the traditional view of hell? It sounds like it. You got hell in your head. You go and you read that. There you go. See, that's proof. Hell. It sure sounds like it. God's tormenting people with flames of fire after they're dead. There are elements around this story that teach us that
that this story has zero to do with a place called hell. This idea of being tormented in Hades is a view we would never have gotten from the Tanakh. So what is Yeshua talking about here? Is he coming up with something that the Tanakh never mentioned? Well, in dealing with this, here's the first thing we have to do. Is this talking of a literal incident? In other words, is Yeshua teaching us doctrine on the afterlife here? Or is this a parable? That's fundamental, people, to understanding this. When you, before you can interpret anything, you have to know what kind of literature am I dealing with? Is this didactic literature? Is it apocalyptic? Is it parabolic? You have to understand what you're looking at so you know what to interpret. So is this a parable like the other parables found in Luke? Or is this didactic? Is this teaching? And the Lord's teaching us about the afterlife. Well, if this were an actual account of life after death, I think there'd be good reason to believe that there's countless sitters suffering eternal torment in hell's flames, screaming to heaven for some kind of relief. Many facts make it clear that this is a parable, though, and not an actual story. For example, let's say, let's go with the literal approach, all right? Let's say this is literal, this is a teaching. You think people in heaven can see and talk to people in hell? Well, that's what we see in the text, right? The people in hell are screaming and the people in heaven are going, whoa, no, no, we can't help you out, sorry. Are the tormented people in hell pleading to those residents in heaven who can see them and asking for relief? Is somebody in heaven having to answer them and say, sorry, there's a big gulf here, you can't get here. Tough. Let me ask you something. You get to heaven. All right, you're in heaven. And there's your relative in hell. They're burning and they're screaming. Help me. Ha! That would be heaven for you, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be enjoyable? You say, well, if I don't like my relative, okay, maybe, but say, <laughs> say it's someone you like. Say you love them. I mean, how are, are you enjoying heaven when you're hearing screams in your ears of people being tormented? That's what this is teaching. If it's didactic, it's didactic, and that's what it's teaching. Do you think that putting your finger in water and putting a drip on somebody's tongue is going to ease the pain of being burned alive? It doesn't seem like that's going to help a whole lot, right? I need more of a fire hose to put this fire out, not a dip, you know, the thing I'm, just something on my tongue, just touch it and I'll be, I'll feel a lot better. No. I mean, you read the text and you're like, if you're going to take this literally, then you take it literally, every bit of it, okay? You don't. What exactly did Yeshua teach his disciples about the timing of God's judgment? Now, this is an important question here, okay? Because when you look at this parable and you see what's going on here, you got to ask, well, is this consistent? with what Yeshua taught elsewhere. Let me show you some of the things He teaches that you're already familiar with because we've been here. All right, This is the will of My Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. When's the resurrection? The last day. The last day of what? The Old Covenant. Right? So in the time Yeshua is telling this, the last day hadn't come yet, so there'd been no resurrection yet. 
People are still dead. John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. People, Christ's return, the resurrection, the judgment all take place on the last day of the old covenant age. So how is this rich man suffering before the judgment? He hasn't been judged by anybody yet. How is he suffering already? Christ taught that the dead are in their graves until the judgment. John 5.28 Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. It's not here yet. It's coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Christ says a resurrection is coming. For the just and the unjust. And as it stands, this story is irreconcilable with biblical teachings of Christ elsewhere. People don't get judged until the resurrection and the second coming. Now our text says, the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. This is the only place in the Bible where the dead are depicted as suffering in Hades or Sheol, which would be the Hebrew equivalent. Now, Yeshua taught that those who die, whether righteous or not, go to the grave and they remain there until the judgment. They don't retain consciousness. They don't go immediately to heaven or a place of torment. They go to the tomb. This is Old Covenant before the resurrection. The dead go to Sheol and they await for the resurrection and the judgment. Look at what the Bible tells us about Sheol. Psalm 6, verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now this is an Old Testament parallelism. So what that means is death and Sheol are synonymous. He says the same things, use different terms. In death there is no remembrance. In Sheol, who will give you praise? So they're saying the same thing. Now, in death you don't remember anything, right? Well, you don't know because you haven't been dead yet. In Sheol, nobody offers praise. And I think this passage affirms that in Sheol or Hades, which is death, there's no remembrance, which is an attribute of conscious existence. And he says, nobody praises you. And I think that seems to be evidence that Sheol is a place of unconsciousness. You're dead. But to make his point clear, relative to the dead being unconscious in Hades, look at Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So in Sheol, he goes, there's no thought. There's no knowledge. There's no wisdom. 146.4 When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, on that very day, his plans perish. Now, the Hebrew word for breath here, his breath departs, is ruach. And ruach is often translated breath or spirit. Same word translated both ways. So you get the idea, his spirit departs, and you think of someone, but when you think of breath, you think he's just dead, right? His breath departs. 
Look at Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. For the living know that they will die. Agree with that? Hopefully they know that, alright? That's why Proverbs says, oh, maybe it's Ecclesiastes, it says, better go to the house of mourning than the house of festivities. Because you go to the house of mourning, it reminds you, I'm coming here one day. Alright, everybody's going to die. He says, but the dead know nothing. What? And they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. So everywhere in the Tanakh, we see this idea of death is perishing, no pain, no consciousness, no anything, you're dead. And that's what leads me to think that Shoal is simply the grave. You go to the grave, you're dead. Now the hope of Israel was a resurrection. Yes, we're going to die, we're going to be in Shoal, but someday the Lord has promised to resurrect the righteous. Now, if man goes to heaven or hell immediately at his death, then what do they not need? A resurrection. There's no need for a resurrection. There's no purpose of a resurrection. They're already in one place or the other. But the Bible teaches the dead will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. Daniel 2.12 And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Sleep is a euphemism for death. Okay, They'll awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, let me just say a word here about the word contempt. It's their own, and it's important to note that the only other time in all the Tanakh that this is used is in Isaiah 66.24, which we just looked at earlier. In Isaiah 66.24, those who have contempt, da'aron, are believers who go out and look on the dead bodies of those who have been turned into ashes. So contempt or abhorrence are the way others think about them. So it doesn't say that they will forever be conscious or in torment, but that others will forever have shame and contempt for them. So it is the contempt here that is said to be everlasting, not the persons. And how does everlasting contempt become everlasting torture? So this resurrection happens after a time of great tribulation, according to Daniel 12.1. It happens at the return of Christ. So man's eternal destiny is determined at the judgment, which according to the Bible, occurs at the second coming of Christ, not when man dies. Look at 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and his kingdom. Now, this says to who is about to judge. Mello is there in the text. He's about to judge because this judgment happens in AD 70. He's about to judge the living and the dead by his appearing. Now, at the time of Pentecost, King David was still in Sheol. All right, Acts 2 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. That he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David's dead. He was, he was dead, still dead, thousand years later. Uh, Acts 
2.34 says, For David did not ascend into heavens. He just went to the grave. His body was still in the tomb, they said. So, I think that the story of Lazarus and rich man is a parable. And parables are not to be taken literally. If we took parables literally, then we have to believe that trees can talk. Let me give you a parable from Judges. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. You've seen trees do that, right? And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance which the gods and men are honored and go and sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come reign over us. All right, we know trees don't talk. We know they don't get assembled together and try to pick a king. All right, this is a parable. And parables aren't to be taken literally. They're teaching a truth. In his book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation, which is a book on hermeneutics, Bernard Ram says this about parables. Determine the one central truth the parable is attempting to teach. This might be called the golden rule of parabolic interpretation. Watch, he says, for practically all writers on the subject mention it with stress. In other words, this is important. When you're going to interpret a parable, find the one thing. Dodd writes this, the typical parable presents one single point of comparison. The details are not intended to have independent significance or all be figured out, what is this from over here? No, what's the central truth? Others have put the rule this way. Don't make a parable walk on all fours. In other words, don't try to pick out every little deal and say it means this or it means that. So keep this in mind as we look at this parable. Alright? Because that's the important thing. We're looking for one central truth. There was a rich man. In Luke 15... There are three parables. The third one begins this way. There was a man who had two sons. Chapter 16 begins with a parable about there was a rich man. In chapter 19, the story is identified as a parable about a nobleman who went to a far country. All of these are used the exact same language, and they're all talking about parables. It's introduced with the same exact language. So he's talking about parables here. These are parables. Now, who is Yeshua talking to in this parable? That's another important thing. What's the context here? What's the context of Luke 16 in this story? Well, if we back up to verse 14, it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Him. And He said to them, Pharisees, you are those who... Justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Listen, they were exalted among men. Okay? They were the leaders. And so basically the Lord's saying, you're an abomination in the sight of God. This is not very PC talk, I know that. But that was before the age of PC, so the Lord didn't have to worry about it. He is talking to the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees who had adopted the pagan view of the afterlife that when you die, you keep on living somewhere else. The first century Jewish historian Josephus, who was a Pharisee, 
describes the Pharisees as having a belief in this place of pre-resurrection afterlife. He writes of the Pharisees. They hold the belief that an immortal strength belongs to souls and that there are beneath the earth punishments and rewards for those who in life devoted themselves to virtue or vileness and that eternal imprisonment is appointed for the latter. But the possibility of returning to life for the former. So what's he saying? Well, some are stuck there, but some get resurrected. You know, they believed in a resurrection. Pharisees believed in that, but they also believed in this torment before judgment. It was the Pharisees that assumed that if God was blessing them in life, He would bless them in the afterlife. They kind of believed whatever your position was in this life, you know, you'd get the same kind of in the next thing. So, if Yeshua was giving theological instructions to answer questions about God's eschatological judgment of sinners, would He be giving that to Pharisees and not His own disciples? I mean, if this is didactic teaching about the afterlife, why does He tell the Pharisees? Why is He giving it to them? Every one of the parables that Yeshua taught, as recorded in Luke 15 and 16, are targeted at the Pharisees and expose their incorrect assumptions and expectations. The Pharisees assumed there were 99 safe sheep. They were this 99 safe sheep. And that the shepherd would not care about that one lost. Hey, we're the important ones. Don't worry about that lost one. The Pharisees assumed that they were the coins already in possession and valuable enough that the woman wouldn't spend time looking for that one lost coin. The Pharisees assume that the father would reject the prodigal's attempt at return because they were the older son that stayed faithful. What are you letting this guy back in the house for? No! They were the older brother. They were faithful. They didn't want him back there. They were the honest managers who did not fear dismissal. So they looked down on the dishonest manager who was desperate for help. The Pharisees saw themselves as the rich man. And they expected to be just as comfortable in the afterlife as they were in this life. The rich man in Lazarus is the last in a string of stories Yeshua told in response to the Pharisees' criticism of the rabble that Yeshua hung around with, the rabble that He associated Himself with. So Yeshua got to the point of these stories when He told the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. Now, talking to the chief priests and the elders, Yeshua said, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. Yeshua said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go in the kingdom of God before you. What do you think that did to them? They're the leaders of the Jewish nation. They're the ones in charge. They're the special people. And Yeshua was saying tax collectors, these tax collectors, they felt about tax collectors like we feel about tax collectors. You know, but even stronger, okay? And prostitutes. They go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. All right, They didn't believe. The Pharisees didn't believe Christ was who He said He was. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe. So they're just, they, they did not believe. Now this is followed by the parable 
in which the householder let out his vineyard to husbandmen. And each time the servant attempted to collect, you know, he sent a servant. They kill one, they beat another. Finally, he says, I'll send my son, they'll respect my son. So he sends his son. And they said, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him and take the vineyard. And so they did. And so what does he say will happen to those husbandmen? God will destroy them and give the vineyard to somebody else. Hmm. Talking to Pharisee. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Well, they have a little bit of clue then. They at least know he's talking to them. Matthew 22 opens with a parable of a wedding feast. In this story, the invited guests respond by offering reasons to be excused. So the king sent the servants into the highway to get as many as he could, both good and bad, to attend the marriage feast. And since the story follows the theme of the preceding two, it's logical to conclude that this also refers to the chief priests and the Pharisees. In each of the three parables just cited, those who were expected to receive God's glory were turned aside in favors of others who had been considered less worthy. The son who agreed to go to work quickly, the husbandmen who were given the opportunity to take part in a profitable venture, and the guests who were first honored in the marriage invitation all failed to appreciate the advantage of their position. They symbolized the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees. So what's the central truth of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man teaching? It's this. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He is talking to Pharisees, and his main point to these Pharisees is the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you. It's going to be given to others. This is what Yeshua is trying to do, I think, in this parable. They're not going to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying instead, they're going to enter the fiery judgment of Gehenna. They are going to be destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, something that we have to understand here is this parable is not a story that Yeshua just made up from scratch. He is using a story that the Pharisees themselves would have used and been familiar with. But he's turning it against them. In other words, this is not how they use the story. They came out on top in their story. Okay, They're the ones that get to go to the Abraham's bosom. But he takes their very own story and turns it upside down. There's a consensus among scholars that he is using a parable that was familiar. He's a familiar folklore, but he's adapting it uh, in a way that would have been very unfamiliar to them. So the story of the, the rich man and the pious poor man, whose fortunes are reversed in the afterlife, seems to originally come from Egypt. I mean, we can go back to Egypt and we find this story used in the Egyptian literature. And it was popular among Jewish teachers. Jewish teachers were using this story. 1623, he says, In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So, the representation of Hades does not agree with the teachings of Christ or the sacred writers throughout the Tanakh. But it agrees perfectly with the ideas entertained by the Jews themselves concerning Hades. See, Christ drew this parable from the theological opinions of the Jews of His day concerning the state of the dead. This is what the Pharisees believed about the dead. So He's taking theirs. Now let's hear it from a Pharisee himself. Josephus writes this. Now in Hades, 
wherein souls of the righteous and unrighteous are detained. It is not necessary to speak of it. Hades is a place in the world not regularly finished, a subterraneous region where the light of this world does not shine, from which circumstances that in this region the light does not shine, it cannot be, but there must be in it a perpetual darkness. So it says Hades is a place of darkness. It's in, you know, subterraneous. It's, they believed it was in the earth. The region is allotted as a place of custody for souls in which angels are appointed as guardians to them who distribute to them temporary judgments. So, okay, where does that idea come from? You don't find that in any of the scriptures. But we got, you know, the angels are there and they distribute temporary judgments agreeable to one's behavior. In other words, depending on how you live, you're going to get kind of judged when you get here. The angels will assign that for you. That's not found anywhere in the Tanakh. This is a Pharisaic idea that came out of the Babylonian captivity. They picked this stuff up and they started teaching it. All right? He goes on to say, as, you read, as we go through Josephus, pay attention to how much this sounds like Luke 16. All right? He says, in this region, there is a certain place set apart as a lake of unquenchable fire. So we got the lake of fire, but whereunto we suppose no one has hither been cast. All right, so, so far, no one's there. Okay, so at least they're right there. This is something future. Okay, but it is prepared for a day aforementioned, aforedetermined by God in which one righteous sentence shall deservedly be passed upon all men. So he said that's going to happen after the judgment. The just are now indeed confirmed in Hades, but not in the same place where the unjust are confirmed. Oh, confined, I'm sorry. So we have two different places here. All right, you see a distinction. Hades, we got a place for the righteous, we got a place for the unrighteous. For there is one descent into this region at whose gate we believe stands an archangel with a host. Which gate, when those who pass through that are conducted down by the angels appointed over souls, they do not go to the same way, but the just are guided to the right hand, the place we call the bosom of Abraham. So, hey, that sounds just, I mean, you got the just going to one, you got two compartments in Hades. The Bible doesn't teach that. You got the just going one place, that's according to the Pharisees. But to the unjust, they are dragged by force to the left hand by the angels allotted for punishment. No longer going with a good will, but as prisoners driven. In other words, they're not going along easily, all right? As prisoners driven by violence into the neighborhood of hell itself. So we got two compartments. Okay, we got the just going to this nice place, the others are being dragged off, who when they are hard by it, continually hear the noise of it, and do not stand clear of the hot vapor. Nor, nor not only so, but where they see the place of the fathers and the just, even hereby they are punished. In other words, they can see these other people on the other side, same idea, for a chaos. Deep and large is fixed between them. There's the great gulf fixed between the two of them. All right? They see the place of the fathers. They see this great gulf fixed. They're aware. This is, just sounds just like Luke 16. This is what the Pharisees believe. This is Josephus. He's a Pharisee. He's telling us what they believe. 
insomuch that a just man that hath compassion upon them cannot be admitted, nor can one that is unjust. If he were bold enough to attempt it, pass over it. In other words, you can't get from one side to the other even if you want to. Now, I think it should be clear that this is Pharisaic doctrine of Hades that we have in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Like I said, you won't find this teaching in Scripture, but you find it in the Pharisees' teaching. Now, the Pharisees did not, however, get this from their own Scriptures. They got it from heathen philosophers. If Christ sanctioned the Hadean state according to the Jewish belief at the time, which He didn't. But if He did, He would plainly be going against the teaching of the Old Covenant writers on the Hadean state, which He doesn't do. Well, the idea of a compartmentalized place in the afterlife was not biblical. You don't find anything about, you know, the bad people in Sheol go here and the good people in Sheol go over here and you got two compartments. You hear that all the time. Christians believe that. It all comes from Luke 16. That started in the Pseudepigrapha. That started in the book of Enoch. Enoch describes a compartmentalized place of the pre-resurrection afterlife. All right, before the coming of Christ. He says there are four compartments in Enoch 22.2, but three separations, 22.9, between them. These four compartments correspond to the four types of men according to the Talmud. Here's the four types. The righteous man who prospers, the righteous man who suffers, the wicked man who prospers, the wicked man who suffers. So he breaks this Hadean realm up into different sections. Yeshua wasn't validating their false idea. He was using it against them. He was telling the Pharisees, just because they were natural descendants of Abraham, didn't mean they were going to get the spiritual inheritance of the kingdom. Since these men were leaders in Israel, I think it may be concluded that the rich man in this parable symbolizes Israel. The leaders of Israel. There was a rich man. He's clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. The parable talks about this rich man feasting sumptuously. And I think the rich man personifies the Jewish people, listen, who were rich in privileges. They were God's chosen people. They have been given the covenants, the promises. Look what Paul says about them in Romans 9, 4 and 5. They're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They they were richly blessed. And they're this rich man in the parable. And Israel's priests just happened to be clothed in purple and fine linen. And they serve the altar every day. Look at Revelation 18.16. Alas, alas, for the great city. What city is that? It's Jerusalem. That was clothed in fine linen and purple. So it seems to me that the rich man is apostate Israel. Living lavishly of all that God has given him. Think that they're blessed. They can't do any wrong. They're going to end up on the right side of things just because God has chosen them. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, 
who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. All right, if in this parable the rich man is Israel, who's the poor beggar here? I think the beggar represents Gentiles. Now, in regard to divine knowledge, they were poor compared to the Jews. They had no knowledge of God. They didn't have His laws, His covenants, His promises. And Matthew 15, 21-28, is a story of a woman of Canaan who begged Yeshua, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou Son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. What did Yeshua do to her? He ignored her. He ignored her. And His disciples advised Him, Send her away. Tell her to get out of here. She's a Gentile. Yeshua said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What are you Gentiles doing here? And Yeshua said, it's not appropriate to take the children's bread and to do what? Cast it to the dogs. The dogs. The words used in her reply could identify her with the beggar, Lazarus. Because she said, truth, Lord, Yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. See, uncircumcised Gentile proselytes of Judaism were referred to as proselytes of the gate or strangers inside the gate. They enjoyed certain rights and privileges according to the Mosaic law, but they were really held out. You know, they went to the temple to worship and they had to stay in their section, okay? And there was a, there was a sign on the wall that said, you will risk your life if you cross this barrier as a Gentile. You will die. So here you go to worship God, and you're like, "Uh, I can only worship God here. Those are the real spiritual people. They get on that. No. And that wasn't God. That was Judaism. God always allowed the foreigners to come to Him. So maybe this parable is condemning this rich man the Pharisees, the Jews, for leaving Lazarus outside when God always accepted foreigners. Well, the death of the two men in the parable, they both died. So are they really dead? Well, I think the death in the parable represents the changes brought about in their relationship by the Gospel. See, until Christ showed up with the Gospel, the Jews were His people. Then He shows up to His people Here's the promise of the new covenant. They reject that. They're no longer His people. But the Gentiles are accepting this gospel. They're becoming the people of God. And the very people who were the people of God, they're no longer the people of God. So a change has taken place. The Gentiles were receptive. And they were becoming, according to Galatians, children of Abraham. They were becoming true Jews. Luke 16, 22 and 23, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So the Gentiles, guess what, are now in Abraham's bosom. Can anyone tell me another scripture where the phrase Abraham's bosom is used? I'll wait. You won't be able to, okay? Because there is none. It's the only time it's ever used. And this parable is using their cultural images to teach a lesson. The idea of Abraham's bosom came from something that the Jews picked up 
while in captivity in Babylon. It's found in the Babylonian Talmud. See, that's the thing. They're imprisoned and they're seeing all these Babylonians worship their gods. They're, oh, that's a pretty good idea. Let's us do that. Well, you people are in captivity because you're worshiping false gods. And so while you're there, you're going to worship more false gods. You people are dumb, okay? Malignant dumb, all right? But that's where they picked this up. Abraham's bosom was a reference to the Abrahamic promises, I think, in this parable. That's what he's talking about. The promises of Abraham, they're now the children of Abraham. They're heirs of the promise through faith in Christ. Because Christ is, the promises were made, according to Galatians, to who? Abraham and his seed. Singular. Who's the seed? Christ. So guess what? The Gentiles believe in Christ. They're seed of Abraham. The Jews who don't believe in Christ, they're no longer the seed of Abraham. Because that the promises that they thought were theirs were made to Abraham and Christ. So if they didn't trust Christ, they didn't get the promises. They're out. Now what happened in AD 70 when the natural kingdom was taken away in judgment? See, God came in AD 70 in judgment on Judaism because they rejected Him and He burned it to the ground. That's it. Now listen. This is their whole life, okay? Jerusalem is where they live. They're proud Jews. This is our homeland. This is our, to be outside of Jerusalem was to be away from God. That's how they viewed it. He was territorial, okay? You get out here, you don't have God with you anymore. You've got to stay in Jerusalem. That's where God lives. The temple was the picture of his residence. He lived there. It was all destroyed and burned to the ground. And they're standing there. We've got nothing anymore. We're done. It's over. They've never sacrificed again. Any form of Judaism today doesn't resemble what the Bible laid out. It's over. They're done. AD 70 was it. And this is what the Lord's warning them about. Something coming, Pharisees. And you're on the wrong side of this thing. You're in trouble. The unbelieving Jews who rejected their Messiah were going to end up weeping and gnashing their teeth in the fires, not of hell, but of Jerusalem. Their city's going to be burnt, and they're going to be burnt in it. Josephus, again, he's a Jew of the time. He was a Jewish historian. He was a Jew who, during the war, uh, became a traitor and went over to the Roman side. He realized, we're losing. I'm getting out of here. So he goes to the Romans. The Romans said, I want you to take note of this whole thing. You know, Write everything down. We want this all recorded. So he's recording. He's a historian. Tacitus, the Roman Historian, they, they give you similar accounts. But Josephus records the destruction of Jerusalem like this. While the temple was ablaze, it's interesting, you know, the Lord talked about this flaming fire and burning and weeping and gnashing teeth. And while the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it. And countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity for age, and no regard was accorded rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike, were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. They just killed everybody. They killed them all. Some Jews, before they escaped the city, were swallowing gold and then trying to get out of the city. So when the Romans were capturing them, they were cutting their bellies open to get the gold out. Inside the city... Before the Romans even got there, the famine was so bad that Josephus records mothers roasting and eating their own children. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 28, 
which covers the blessings and cursings, all right, one of the, ble- one of the cursings is this. God says, if you don't listen to me, this is going to happen. This is exactly what happens, all right? Let's go on to Josephus. Through the roar of the flames. Now, can you picture, have you ever heard a fire going, I mean, I get a fire going, I love a fire. I use real wood. I like that fire. And I get that thing, I mean, it is literally howls when those flames are going up that chimney, okay? And if you've been close to a fire, you hear the roar. You hear the noise that the fire makes. The roar of the flames streaming far and wide. The groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze. And the noise, nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. There were the war cries of the Roman legions as they swept onwards in mass. The yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword. By fire and sword. The panic of the people who cut off above fled into the arms of the enemy and their shrieks as they met their fate. The cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes in the city below. And now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger, when they beheld the temple on fire, found strength once more to lament and wail. The temple mount everywhere enveloped in flames seemed to be boiling over at its base. This thing is just a fire. This, this whole thing. And this, this is what the Lord is trying to tell them. When He talks of Gehenna, this is the picture. It happened to them before. It's national judgment. This is what He's talking about. He says, Yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those who the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. Now Josephus goes on to say this, and, and this is, you got to catch this here. Now the seditious at first gave orders that the dead should be buried out of public treasury as not enduring the stench of their dead bodies. you got to picture this. There's dead people everywhere, people. It's stinking, it's nasty. But afterwards, when they could not do that, there just wasn't enough money in the treasury, you can't bury all these people, they had them cast down from the walls into the valleys beneath. What was the valley on the other side of the wall where they were casting them? It was the Valley of Hanom. This is Gehenna. Well, that's weird, all these dead bodies in this valley. However, when Titus, in going his rounds along the valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and he spread out his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing and such was the sad case of the city itself. It was because of their revolt against Rome that this happened. All right, They were under Roman domination. They said, no longer we're paying you taxes. No longer we're submitting to you. So Rome said, well, one had to go in and crush them. So listen, this parable is about the torment and the literal destruction of Jerusalem that the rich Pharisees were going to experience themselves because of the, their rejection of the Gospel. The rich man represents Israel. Lazarus symbolizes the Gentiles. At the coming of the Gospel, these two people exchanged positions because the 
Gentiles believed. The rich man who previously fared sumptuously every day and had all the benefits, he's now being tormented. The deprived Lazarus found himself in Abraham's lap. So what's Yeshua intending to teach with this parable? I believe that He intended to point out the stubbornness of the Jews and their impending doom for having rejected the Messiah. Their whole Bible talked about the Messiah and His coming. All the feasts, all the sacrifices, everything pointed to Him and they reject Him. Because they wanted a military leader. They didn't want you know, some guy who's going to die on a cross. So they rejected God. They rejected all that He promised them. Now look at the end of this parable. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Because he says, I got some brothers, man. Don't, don't let my brothers come here. This is not a good place. I don't like it. Send someone to tell my brothers. And no, they got Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? They got the Bible. If they don't believe the Bible. And he said, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will he be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You get that, people? If they don't believe the Bible, people, and this we think the same way. Well, guess what? If someone rose from the dead and said, hey, you need to believe in Christ, I'd believe right away. No, you wouldn't, not according to Yeshua. Yeshua raised Lazarus. What did that cause the Pharisees to do? It caused them to ramp up their endeavor to wipe him out. We've got to kill him more. All the people are going to Lazarus now and they're thinking he's something. We've got to kill him. He raised the dead and their response is, let's kill him. They should have known from their scriptures that Messiah raised the dead. But they see it and they don't believe it. Guess what? Then Yeshua raises from the dead. And people, this is a, you know, you have to understand the power of Rome is death. That's the power of Rome. You, you violate Rome, they kill you. They put you on a cross. So the power of death is Rome. Well, guess what? Christ just overcame all Rome's power and said, nothing there. Rose from the dead. They still would not believe. They still wouldn't believe. And because of their unbelief, the temple was destroyed and they were scattered into all nations. And their privilege as a nation ended forever, people. God's done with the Jews. He ended His relationship with them in AD 70. Unless you have a relationship with Christ, you're out. Because the promises of Abraham were made to Abraham and his seed, singular Christ. So if you don't believe in Christ, you're out. Dr. Lightfoot on the subject says this. The main scope and design of the parable seems to be this to hint the destruction of unbelieving Jews, who though they had Moses and the prophets, they didn't believe them. Nay, they would not believe, though one even Jesus arose from the dead. For the conclusion of the parable abundantly evidenced what it aimed at, if they hear not Moses and the prophets. So people, I submit to you, this parable is not about the afterlife. It's about the coming of judgment on Jerusalem, which was a covenant judgment that ended God's relationship with the Jews. It's about old covenant Judaism being done because of their rejection. 
And it's about the new covenant coming into fulfillment in all its promises. People, there is nothing here about eternal conscious torment. This is about a judgment that happened in history when God wiped out and finished that old covenant. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, it is deep. It is so deep. There is so much here for us, Lord. Help us to grasp what we can. Help us to seek, Lord, to understand all that You have made available for us, Lord. We realize it's a monumental task. Give us hearts of Bereans that we may dig, that we may search, that we may seek to understand, Lord, what You are saying. And then apply that to our lives. Thank You, Father, for Your grace, Your patience with us. Amen. All right, questions, comments? No, not from you. Fake news. Yeah, fake news. <laughs> fake news. <laughs> that was too good. Okay, go ahead, Jeff. The, uh, you had mentioned that constant that the story kind of is from Egyptian stuff, but is there any, the fact that the description he uses is pretty much right out of the book of Enoch, the fact that Enoch speaks of the place of light, and the chambers of darkness separated by the water, the same scenario, could that, I mean, is that using that story too? Plus, um, the Jews do tend to use like Proverbs 7.27 as an idea that Sheol had chambers that it talks about going down to the chambers of Sheol. Um, could some of that have come from that writing? And what do you, have you thought anything about the fact that most people say, you know, parables don't use common names, so like, yeah, I mean, that's an excuse that's used a lot. Parables don't use common names. It's a, I don't know, there's not a way to get around this being a parable. If it's not a parable, then it's didactic. And then you can't, that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. All right? And yes, I think Enoch, you asked a lot of questions there, and I think Enoch is picking up this idea, okay, this Jewish false belief that they had that they got from other cultures and they started putting it into their teachings. And I don't think it's biblical. And that's why I don't think Enoch should be in the canon. Now, I, I've said this before. I think Enoch is, is extremely valuable. And it teaches us a lot of things about what those Jews understood during that time period. All right? And the Jewish writers even use and quote from that book. So I think it's important. But I don't think it belonged in the canon because I think some of this false idea came in from Babylon, came in from Egypt, came in from other cultures. Stan. Um, is this somehow related to the sheep and the goats? Uh, yes, Dan, I think it's absolutely related to the sheep and the goats. Okay, Because where is that thing about the sheep and the goats? That's found in, in Matthew 25. Well, Matthew 24 is talking about what? The coming of Christ, right? Christ is coming in judgment. It's talking about the resurrection. And in Matthew 24, it says the stars shall fall from heaven. That's a judgment on the gods. See, at 8070, the gods were judged also. This judgment in Jerusalem, the, hev- the stars fell, they were judged. You got sheep and goat. The sheep, the unbelievers, were judged. They were cast into the fires. The believers weren't. The believers escaped Jerusalem because the Lord told them. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Get out of here. And they did. They left. Now, you know, this is against all nature, people. You see armies coming. We're under attack. Where do you go? 
run to the fortress. Jerusalem was a fort. I mean, it was monumental, the stones and the protection there. But the Lord said, don't do that. Well, a lot of Jews didn't listen. I mean, Christians, they didn't listen and they went in there. It's a natural thing to do. So, the Romans surround the city and then stuff happens in Rome and we got the changing of the guard, so they back off. The siege stops. The people that are smart say, let's get out of here, and they fled and they went to Pella. Rome came back and circled the city and then collapsed and destroyed it. So, all right. So yeah, I, I think that I think it is definitely connected because that's a, that's the theme of Matthew twenty four and twenty five. It's God's judgment on Jerusalem and the angels, the gods are going to be judged at that time. Also, he said, I think that's Psalm seventy two or Psalm eighty two when he tells them, "You will die like men." How do men die? They perish. And that's what's going to happen to you, gods. The gods were immortal. God said, "Not anymore." Taking your immortality, you're going to die like men. David? Um, in verse 24 of the parable, where it says, having, uh, talking about the rich man having cried out, he said, is that the right verse? Sorry, 25. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you did receive your good things in life, and Lazarus, the bad things, but now he is comforted and you are distressed. Um, do you think that Paul is maybe somehow echoing that in his letter to the Thessalonians because he's talking about the coming judgment and how those um, who are distressing them would be troubled. Right, exactly. Uh, Yeah, I would have no problem with that. I think Paul understood this completely. I think Paul understood what the Lord was talking about when he talked about Gehenna. And that's what he tells the Thessalonians. Those who are troubling you, judgment is coming upon them. It's going to come. And here's the interesting thing about Gehenna. Paul doesn't mention it. The other New Testament writers don't mention it. Yeshua is the only person to talk about Gehenna. He's talking to his own people, the Jews in Jerusalem. This fire is coming upon you, he's saying. None of the other writers talk about that. Anybody else? Yeah, okay. Someone brought up about the proper name being used. And because the proper name, you know, Lazarus means... One who God's help, one who God helps. And I think that's why he used that name there. You know, because he's showing the one God helps is the one who reaches out to him in faith, who trusts him. It's not you who think you're in a privileged position. And that is just a weak argument for saying it's not a parable. Because if it's not a parable, then it's didactic, and then you got people in hell crying out to people in heaven. And you got people judged before the judge. None of that none of it makes sense. A parable makes sense. Gary? Um, I just had a thought. I don't make too much of this, but the um, uh, obviously in life, Lazarus didn't have it easy yet. Um, in in the end, he was taken into Abraham's bosom. So we should not necessarily expect to have it easy. Yeah, I don't know if that's kind of a stretch there, but I, <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a stretch there. But yeah, I, I mean, you could. I mean, what you're saying is true. Right. 
I mean, yes, our life is not going to be easy. I mean, that's the point of every, every Sunday we hear the, you know, the parables, or we hear, not the parables, we hear the stories of, yeah, i got parable on the brain here. We hear the stories of the persecuted church because this is happening around the world. People are suffering right now. Now, we Americans believe in the prosperity gospel, whether we believe, say we do or not, because we think God should give us everything nice and we should have it you know, comfortable and you know, everything should be the way we want it. And when it isn't, we get mad at God. You know, God is good, people, and He's good all the time. When things aren't going your way, God is still God, and He's still in control, and He's still in charge. You know, and you think you deserve a better treatment in life than His Son did, who He put to death on a cross. People, our minds are screwed up. Okay? And, and it, it comes from the problem of not recognizing the, the gap between God and us. He's God. Whatever He does is right and just and fair. And our goal in life is to submit to Him and honor Him in all we say and do. You know, God didn't promise us, I'm going to make, your, I'm going to make you happy your whole life. I want everything to go your way because you're a good person. You deserve it. My own son I'll put on a cross and butcher. But you want to make sure your life is good. I, I do see myself anyway as the beggar, the sores. And... That's a good place to be. We are the beggars, you know. Because it's the, it's the beggar. Remember the story of the, the, the Pharisee and the beggar? And the Pharisee lifted his eyes to heaven and he got, thank God I'm not like that guy. Man, I pray twice a day. I give tithes of all I possess. And what did the other man do? He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the one who God accepts. Jeff? He keeps coming up, but just to remember, this description, if you look at it from after life, is not heaven and hell. It's a shield. Correct. Right. Abraham's bosom is not heaven, and the other guy's not in the lake of fire. This is a description using the understanding of shield being a light place separated by water and a dark place. So this is pre-resurrection idea. Um, You know, you, you that's true. I mean, that, that, this is again, this is before the coming of Christ, before the resurrection. This is how they viewed this. But again, you have people tormented before the judgment. It's a different type. We don't, we don't know what, if it's different from when you're resurrected and you receive eternal life versus whatever. That's... Well, it's either teaching pre resurrection or post resurrection. We don't know that there's not a pre resurrection torment per se because it doesn't really speak of that. I do. John 5, the Lord said, You're in the, they're in the tombs. Those in the tombs are going to hear the voice. And I don't think there's any idea, that, like I said, there's no hint anywhere of someone suffering prior to judgment. That's the point of judgment. Daniel 12. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Just and unjust. What happens to the unjust? They're thrown in the lake of fire. You say, see, that's hell. Let me ask, if I took something and threw it in the lake of fire, what would happen to it? <laughs> Unless it was immortal, then it would just keep burning and burning. All right, true. All right, we got to wrap this up. Yes. Well, you have to. See, you've got to be responsible because, like you said, I, all right, last week what I said was wrong. Gehenna is not a fire dump, okay? It's not a dump outside Jerusalem. That's not a big deal, but there's a lot of people teaching things that everybody just grabs on. This rabbi in the 13th century made this statement, and like I said, you find any commentary and you're going to hear everybody talking about Jerusalem being the garbage, Gehenna being the garbage dump of Jerusalem. All from one common in a 13th century rabbi. So it's easy to get off track and stay off track 
And that's why, yeah, you have to dig into this, you know. I'm not asking you to believe me. This is what I think. I've been studying this, all right? So if you see something different, and listen, I, I do appreciate those who email me and showing me other opinions because I want to see what you got. All right? Okay, we are way over time. Um, let's stand together to be dismissed in prayer. Father, thanks for the time to study. Thanks for this family, Lord. Thanks for our internet family joining us and, and just the opportunity, Lord, to, to spend time together in Your Word. Father, give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. May we truly search these things out for ourselves. Thank You for Your grace to us, Father. In Yeshua's name, Amen.